The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, there's a lot going on here. It's, <laughs> it's great. Um, so welcome. This is the third in a series of five uh, week-long, I mean, f- uh, five, five classes, five talks on, on the topic of samadhi, concentration. So is there anyone who hasn't been to the previous two talks or listened to this? Okay, yeah. So um, it's, it's great. It's one of the great things about um, this practice in particular and this topic is you can really enter um, anywhere. Actually, so um, one of the just driving over here, um, I had this image. I was thinking about samadhi, and samadhi is the Pali word for usually translated as concentration. Um, for this series, I'm calling it gathering the mind. So this this movement, this um, process of collecting, of gathering, centering the mind, um, calming the mind. Um, the word concentration almost in a way doesn't do justice to the, the scope of what samadhi entails. You know, there's this element of, you know, usually we think of concentration as a kind of focus, a one-pointedness, and, and there's definitely that element in samadhi but the, the working definition I like for samadhi is um, the quality of undistractedness. So if you think about, you know, of uh, undistractedness can take many forms. It could be a kind of focused, uh, closed-in um, concentration, or it could be a kind of panoramic concentration where the mind is very still, but things are just coming and going and moving. And, you know, in a way, the skill of driving requires both of those. You know, you've got to be kind of looking at what's right in front of you and then also scanning, you know. And um, so, uh, so anyway, I was just coming over here and thinking, one image popped into my mind. Uh, when I was a college student, I spent about uh, seven months in England uh, studying at Oxford. And it was great. It was, you know, it's just a great place to be and uh, fascinating for me. I never left the country before, so it was just a lot of new experiences. And I joined the rowing team. You know, it was my college had a rowing team, and, and I just thought that would be a kind of thing to do in uh, Oxford. And... Um, we were all first-year students and just learning how to coordinate. And, you know, at first we were kind of, you know, no, most of us never been in a boat before. You know, it's like, and, um, and how could we all row at the exact same time? You know, this idea of that, you know, I think it was like 10 guys and one girl who's like at the top, who's really lightweight, who's steering. And... Um, 
when we could finally coordinate and we could finally all synchronize. And it was, you know, it was, it was nonverbal. It was just this kind of getting to know each other and sensing each other and just practicing. And just, um, it's quite amazing the speed that could be generated. And it's, it's many times more than just you would think like one plus one plus one, you know, is 10. But there's this like cumulative um, effect and samadhi is a little bit like that. It's like um, there's a when the mind and the body are unified, and the mind and the body are cooperating, and all the pieces are cooperating the back, the neck, the hands, the heart, the mind, the breath, and everything is pointing in the same direction. And, and there, there can be a tremendous beauty, tremendous uh, power that comes with that kind of uh, coordination, unification. Um, even if your mind is thinking a lot, you can think about the meditation. You know, you can count the breath. You can give the mind, the thinking mind, something to do. And it's like everything is lined up together and uh, contributing in a way. So that's just one image. Um, You know, of course, usually we're divided. We're scattered, we're fragmented, and we're here, but we're thinking about something else, or we wish we were, things were different, and we're... uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of ways that the mind and the body get split and the mind starts doing its thing. And so samadhi is this kind of training, training the mind, training the heart over and over again. Um, the, the kind of samadhi that we've been talking about in this series is uh, called anapanasati, is working with mindfulness of the breath. Um, there, there are different practices that the Buddha taught, um, you know, people staring at colored discs or looking at a candle flame or all these kind of things. The breath happens to be a really good uh, object of, of, of concentration. Um, because the breath has movement. You know, if you think about it, it's very hard to pay attention to something that's not moving for a long time. You know, if you just like pay attention to your you know, kneecap or something. Kind of, you can do it, but I mean, you know, for an hour or something, it's like, but the breath, it, it has these very interesting qualities. It, it, it's, the breath is said to intersect, uh, it's at the nexus point of the body and the mind, you know. So the breath is happening all the time. It's not something we have to do. Um, you know, we don't think about it. We're still breathing. Um, yet, we can control our breath, and the breath actually reflects the condition of the mind and the body. You know, I know when I'm uh, calm and settled and relaxed, the breath tends to be deeper and softer, smoother. When I'm uh, agitated and uh, anxious and thinking a lot and, and, you know, the energies come up, the breath can tend to be rapid and shallow. And, you know, so 
in the Vipassana practice, the standard practice that we do here, uh, we often say that even when you're working with the breath, it's not a breathing exercise. You know, we're not, we're not trying to breathe a certain way or ex- extend the breath or do anything kind of special with the breath. But it's a mindfulness exercise just to uh, notice how the breath is, how the breath happens to be. Is it slow? Is it fast? Is it shallow? Is it deep? And just to see it and to be with it the way it is, um, there tends to be a kind of a settling. You know, when we're with the breath in a way that's non-interfering, you know, there tends to be a settling process. And often people uh, feel that there's something calming about being with the breath. Um, so, that, so that's the mindfulness practice. And the samadhi part, the concentration part, it's a little bit of a different emphasis. Um, The way I think about it, I mean, this is this is a little bit of a simplification, but the way I think about it is, when you're when you're doing vipassana, when you're doing mindfulness, and you're working with the breath, you're noticing all the movement and all the change. You know, we could say kind of uh, the goal of vipassana is to see impermanence, to see change. You know, so we're refining our perception of change. You know, we kind of. You know, one one famous teacher was asked to to summarize all of the Buddhist teachings in two words, and he said, "Everything changes." You know, that's that's the essence of it: impermanence. Um, one time when I was practicing in Japan, and I and I it was kind of uh, went to see a a famous uh, Zen teacher and, and do a sit a retreat with him, and I asked him. Uh, I can't remember exactly what I asked, but it's something like, this is like the, the one-to-one meetings with the master. So you go in and you make your bows and you can talk about your practice or ask a question or he asks you a question. And I asked him, um, I said, if everything changes, what's the one thing that doesn't change? Or what doesn't change? Something like that. And he looked at me and he said, impermanence. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and this is this is the the big riddle, the big koan of practice is um, how do we truly come to peace, come to harmony with an existence in which everything is changing? Uh, things change, and we change. Um, so, and, and so the Buddha said there are three marks of three characteristics of this realm of existence. Things change, we change, and usually this causes suffering. And so how do we come into line with this truth and come into harmony, to peace with this truth in a way that um, uh, impermanence is not a cause for suffering, but rather a cause for freedom, a cause for peace. Um, so that's the kind of riddle of practice. And 
in vipassana practice and mindfulness practice, we're working with the breath, you know, with the body, thoughts, emotions, sounds, whatever comes up, and seeing how they come and go, seeing how they change. You know, so it's one thing to know, yeah, everything changes, you know, today's Thursday and tomorrow will be Friday and, you know, I get it. I mean, that, you know, we all kind of know it intellectually, but it's another thing to have a mind that's so settled and so clear that you can see the beginning of a thought, like a little bubble that's not even, that's pre-verbal. Just that momentum to have a thought or that you can, it's like there is no breath. There's just vibration and movement and um, tiny little buzzing and, you know, because the breath is just an idea, right? You know, it's just a concept. The knee, the elbow, these are just concepts. What does it feel like for the, from the inside? You know, that, so that's the kind of um, uh, clarity of perception that Vipassana can bring. And it takes quite a settled, you know, quite a lot of samadhi in a way, you know, to have, the samadhi is the factor of stability, the steadiness, it's like boom, you know, it's the, it's the rock, the table, it doesn't move. And then the mindfulness, the vipassana is looking and seeing, observing, knowing. So that's the factor that sees impermanence. So these two are partners, they work together it can be very helpful to spend some time, whether it's weeks or months or years, cultivating this quality of samadhi, of steadiness, of stillness. Um, It can be cultivated through vipassana itself and it does deepen through just mindfulness, you know, just mindful, just being mindful, you know, continuously mindful, samadhi will deepen. and there are also ways and practices of um, consciously cultivating that quality of stillness, that quality of calm. And there are a lot of benefits that come from doing that, you know, of just, um, just the peace and the sense of well-being that can come from unifying, being in one place and simplifying. So... So one difference between the vipassana and the samadhi practice, the concentration, is we simplify the breath. You know, so rather than necessarily really looking and seeing the change, the, the minutia of the breath, we tune into this um, other aspect of it, just the sheer simplicity of it, the sheer repetition of the breath. Uh, the rhythm of the breath. You know, the breath has a rhythm. And I mean, this is one of the reasons that when there's too much samadhi and not enough of energy and other factors, it's very easy to fall asleep in meditation. And we, you know, often you see teachers up here, you know, just kind of, you know, nodding off. And, you know, when there's a lot of samadhi, a lot of calm, a lot of stillness, um, you just kind of get absorbed into the breath. You get absorbed into the rhythm. And there can be something, many people describe that as very healing, a kind of healing quality. Um,
so uh, one of the things we talked about last week was this uh, samadhi as this capacity to stay, to stay with experience, but it's like to stay in a, in a way that like, you know, uh, a well-trained puppy, you know, you don't really have to, you know, if you, if you trained a dog really well, they don't really need to be on a leash because they'll just, they just stay right with you and they walk with you. And like, so one of my teachers has a, uh, a dog, quite a big dog and he was a rescue dog he's a we think he's kind of a belgian malinois but he was you know he's a mutt and he was rescued and he maybe had trauma or maybe just he was he was he was a little bit aggressive and he was very very frisky and very playful but in a little bit of a scary way especially you know especially with other dogs and you know just want to provoke them and you know not never never hurt them but just and then over time, my, my teacher, Mel, uh, from Berkeley, uh, Mel Weitzman, who's kind of like a dog whisperer in a way. <laughs> he, he's a hum- human whisperer also. But he, with animals and especially dogs, he, he just has, he never raises his voice and he never. And he just like, just with a whisper or a nod, Chula will come running. Chula will come over. Chula will stop. You know, like, you know, he'll just raise his hand a little bit and Chula will stop at the crosswalk. And, you know, it's quite amazing to see. And, you know, it, Chula wasn't, I mean, if, you know, if you knew this dog 10 years ago, this is a really difficult dog to, to train. And now he's so, you know, he's also older and he's, and he's mellowed. But, you know, you know, I feel safe having him around my two and a half year old. I mean, she's a little nervous, uh, but she's fascinated with him as well. But this, you know, it's just like, um, so that, that, that capacity to stay and to um, stay with experience in a continuous way. Um, the Buddha talked about two factors that, uh, that uh, enable the mind to do this. And I define them as connecting and sustaining. You know, so if you're working with the breath, you know, connecting to the breath is this, uh, you know, just noticing the breath, noticing the feeling of the breath. Uh, Maybe a thought or maybe something else will happen. And then you, again, oh yeah, my intention is to be with the breath. Come back to the breath. Again, that's connecting. So over and over again, we're connecting. You know, could be 500 times or a thousand times in a sitting. We we leave and we connect, come back. We disconnect and we connect, you know. And then sustaining is the second quality. And this is what we talked about as polishing the breath or rubbing the breath. This idea of, of continuous contact. And that's one of the definitions of samadhi. Is like 
is directly, continuously being with something. And just, just cultivating that as a skill is um, an incredibly beautiful and uh, wonderful skill, um, especially when being with other people. You know, the ability to really be with a person and connect and then stay in a continuous way and, and to offer them that continuous presence is a real gift. Um, so the, the Pali words for those are vitaka and vichara. And um, does anyone have any questions about that so far? That's, I think that kind of gets us up to, up to speed. Max, earlier it seemed like, like you were um, equating Vipassana and mindfulness. I think of those as different. It was a little bit of a simplification, but yeah, I was equating them in a sense. I should be more precise. Um, Mindfulness and concentration are partners in samadhi. I mean, that's how I think of them as partners. And the practice of vipassana can encompass both of them. In, the, in, in some traditions, in some schools, the paths are a little bit separated. So you have the path of vipassana, which is more of a wisdom, and then you have the path of samadhi, which is more of a concentration. So there's different ways of, of thinking about it, but... Yeah. I see how mindfulness and concentration are different, but one can support the other. And so, uh, but but, um, um, Vipassana or insight, as I have usually heard it translated, seems like it might be a product of the other two. But I'm, I'm not sure how. You can. I, I I'll, I'll repeat the question just to um, mindfulness and concentration as factors that support each other, and vipassana is like kind of the insight piece, which is, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, there are different ways of understanding it, and not to get too, you know. These are slippery concepts. Yeah, no, no, it's great. Um, just to say that um, some teachers, some traditions see concentration practice as separate from vipassana. So it's almost like you can't do vipassana at the same time as you do concentration, samadhi practice. Others see them as, as working together and they can work together. There's, there's certainly... Um, uh, Samadhi in vipassana practice. Um, I don't want to get too it's into it, but it, it, I, you know, in um, talk number five, <laughs> we're going into this much more because that the subject of that is using concentration for wisdom. So where it where it can kind of fit in. Um, so. Yeah.
Um, any other questions so far? I haven't even gotten to my <laughs> topic for today. Which is the topic for today? <laughs> it's all it's all the topic for today. But the t- the 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 new piece for today is um, the obstacles to concentration. You know, so the 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 difficulties, the hindrances, the distractions. Um, so I'll get to that in a second. Um, There is a researcher at Stanford called, uh, her name is Carol Dweck. And I had come across her stuff before and then I just saw an article this week and I just thought it was interesting. Um, She studies children and she studies um, qualities of, just different qualities that children have, especially qualities of how they learn and perseverance and things like that. And I think she's the source of this thing. It's kind of out in the culture now of this idea of, um, you know, if, if you have a child, um, I mean, this, I think this goes for, true for anyone, really. Um, how you praise the child um, has quite a profound impact on how the child sees herself or himself, how they learn, how they understand. So like with, with my, with our daughters, I mean, we, tr- you know, if she kind of does something new, like, you know, getting potty trained or something, we don't say, oh, wow, you're so clever. You're so smart, you know, or, or whatever it is. We say, oh, you, tr- you really tried hard or you made a really good effort or you look, seem like you're really having fun or, you know, um, does that, is that f- people familiar with that a little bit? And, and the basic concept behind that is that um, if you, if you, it's seeing, it's seeing yourself or seeing something is fixed versus seeing something is changeable and, and capable of growing. So it's, um, the basic idea is that, um, just to relate it back to this practice briefly, just about everyone has to work really hard <laughs> at concentration, at samadhi. You know, the, the momentum of our minds is such that we're carried away by thinking, we're carried away by emotion, we're carried away by the past, by the future, by our desires, by our fears, by our just restless energy, by our doubts. That's just true for just about everybody. And so if you have the idea that um, there's some natural ability to meditate, to get concentrated, to get calm, to you either have it or you don't, um, that's not so helpful for meditation, and it's not so accurate. If you have the ability, so, so these are the things she says. She says, a fixed mindset is, if you have to work hard, you don't have ability, right? You know, if you have to work really hard, well, then what's the point? Because you must not be good at it. That's one mindset. And I'm sure we can all relate to that and some, you know, have, have that thought or have that thing. The other mindset is the growth mindset. 
the more you challenge yourself, the smarter you become. Or, you know, in this case, the more samadhi you develop. The more you challenge yourself, the more you challenge yourself to be with two breaths or three breaths or four breaths in a row and just staying with it is the, the samadhi muscle starts to grow, starts to get stronger. So just, just kind of just reinforcing that idea that this is a training. You know, it's not a kind of innate skill. Um, And so one of the basic principles of meditation, of Buddhist meditation, is um, this idea of not necessarily, if you have a goal, something, it's not necessarily approaching the goal head-on directly, but it's looking at what are the things that get in the way of that goal. You know, so... You know, often in vipassana practice, mindfulness practice, we talk about clinging. You know, is that, you know, familiar with that idea of kind of when the mind is attached to something, holds on to something. And so we so you talk about non-clinging. You know, but what's non-clinging? You know, I mean, it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's a slippery, it's an abstract. So rather than saying, I'm going to sit down and do non-clinging, I, you know, I sit down and I just notice all the ways that the mind clings, all the ways that the mind goes out for something, wants something, or wants to get away from something, um, all the ways that the mind resists and uh, fantasizes and uh, avoids and, you know. Um, so this is a basic principle of meditation practice. With concentration practice, it's especially important. Um, you know, so it's if we want to be more calm, if we want to be more focused, more concentrated, more settled, it's extremely helpful to uh, look at what are the things that get in the way of that samadhi, that get in the way of that concentration. Um, not only to look at them, but to become so familiar with them. It's like, you know, it, it, it's very, you know, there's, there's one technique in meditation of kind of, of labeling thoughts. You know, so it's kind of, if you've ever, if you've ever done this practice, it's kind of like, it's, it's a little bit humbling. It's, you know, I remember doing it and realizing there's only like, five different kinds of thoughts, I think. <laughs> you know, all the time, you know, there's like <laughs> desire, there's, you know, fear, thought, there's, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, it's just like buckets and you can just slot in all these fascinating thoughts into just these few buckets. And so the basic idea is to, um, really get to know these forces of distraction in the mind. So um, the Buddha talked about um, five of uh, the five most common of these. You've probably heard this 
list. Um, and they're, they're usually called the five hindrances. Um, this is one of the most useful things to, to know, to remember. Um, and so their desire, sensual desire, um, ill will or aversion, um, restlessness and worry grouped together. Um, the fourth is called sloth and torpor. It's kind of old-fashioned. Who has sloth? You're slothful. You know, have laziness or something. And then doubt is the fifth. You know, and the way I remember it and the way I think about it is it's, you know, desire and aversion are like two sides of the same coin. You want it, you want something, or you don't want it. You want to get something or get away from something. And then restlessness and sloth and torpor are like about energy. Too much energy is re- you become restless. Too little energy is, is kind of this kind of dullness, sloth and torpor. And then the fifth is doubt. And it's often doubt about oneself or doubt about the teachings or the practice. These are really really useful to kind of memorize this list and um, because the reason they're useful is because they're so common and they come up so much and so the Buddha said the only thing that separates you from the samadhi that the Buddha had the only thing are these five hindrances desire aversion restlessness sloth and torpor and doubt. When these are absent, when these are not present, um, the mind is concentrated, the mind is absorbed, the mind is, the way I think about it is that these are movements of mind. And these are kind of movements that cover over the mind's innate stillness. You know, so, um, they're really useful. I mean, there's the common um, the typical things that we say about them are just, you know, not to, as much as you can, not to take them personally. You know, everyone's version of desire or fear or aversion may be, you know, the, the content of the thought may be different, but everyone has desire in the mind. Everyone has aversion. You know, so they're not personal. You know, as much as possible, not to take them personally. Um, they're visitors to the mind. They come and they go. You know, so even if you're a person whose mind is filled with lust or filled with hate or filled with something, your chances are it's not filled with lust like 24 hours a day. You know, even if you're like 16-year-old boy. <laughs> you know, and so to notice the times when these are absent, to notice the times when, oh, there's, the energy feels pretty balanced. It's not, you know, too restless, it's not too dull, it's not. Um, like I said before, to get really familiar with them, um, I, I recently learned a little bit more about this concept of to be a connoisseur about something. You know, and if you, uh, one of the blogs that I follow, I think I was talking about tea, he was saying that if you want to become a connoisseur about, of tea, about tea, or about anything really, you, you, 
you, sam- you, you sample different ways of doing it side by side. So he would take the same tea, but then he would brew it according to different temperatures of the water, different times of brewing. You know, he discovered, oh, I like it best at this temperature of water at this brewing time. Um, you know, I thought, wow, that's quite a, you know, uh, you know, that uh, was very interesting to me. And you make sense, you know, wine tasting, people do that and, you know, sample different wines. And you, so you become an expert in something when you, you know, there's something about really getting to know it, but in this, um, in a certain kind of container, you know, so, so in a way the meditation is the container. And we're getting to know our own characteristic ways of clinging, of the ways the mind gets distracted. You know, um, so it can just be very interesting. So these hindrances or these distractions can be interesting data about oneself. It's like often I'll sit down and I'll notice this one recurring thought or recurring fear. It's like, oh, that's really interesting. This is something that's really present for me. And I hadn't, I wouldn't have noticed it, but because it keeps coming up, you know, this is data about ourselves. And we, we learn to, we learn how to, when you become a connoisseur of your own mind and your own distractions, you don't get fooled as much anymore. It's like, I, I, uh, I drive my daughter every morning to nursery school. And I'm always, I mean, just like for a minute while we're in the, getting ready in the car, I'm always thinking about what is the fastest, the best way to avoid traffic and to do this. And we live in San Francisco and she goes to school kind of across town. And there's one very easy route that I usually take. And it's, it's a pleasant way to drive but it gets really backed up in the mornings. But it's very seductive because I, I always do that. It's such a habit. And I have to consciously think, no, not going to go that way. going to go no, another way. With the hindrances, it's the same thing. Once you've turned down a road a hundred times, a thousand times, and you know it's a dead end, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, you know you've replayed that conversation a thousand times. <laughs> you, know, you know there's no resolution. Or you've replayed that um, you know, that scenario or, or that, uh, you know, whatever it is. The thousand and first time you can say, oh, I know, that's it. I don't have to turn down and go all the way down the road just to turn around and come all the way back, <laughs> you know? So that's what it's like when we're with the breath and we're counting the breath. And then we, this old familiar story comes up. Oh, yeah, remember that when that happened? And that was so bad. Or that was so great. And then you start, you know, going down. And then it's like, at some point, it might be in the next thought, the next breath. It might be 10 minutes later. It might be when they bring the bell, you realize, turn around and come back, you know. So when we really get to know the terrain, it's like those, those seductive dead ends don't fool us as much. It's like, oh no, I know where that one goes. I can just keep, keep going. Um, 
So one of the differences, um, one of the things we often say in mindfulness practice is, and one of the things Gil often says, um, especially in the intro course, is that in mindfulness practice, um, there are no distractions. You know, this idea is that what, you know, the basic idea is you can be mindful of anything, right? You know, so it's not like you need something special to be mindful. Whatever comes up, you're sitting, your intention is to be with the breath, but then some strong emotion comes up. You say, okay, I'm going to do mindfulness with this emotion. Then the body starts hurting somewhere. You start to do mindfulness with the body. Just, you know, just noticing whatever comes up. And that's a beautiful way of practicing. You know, so there, there are no distractions. Um, In concentration practice, in samadhi practice, when we have a very clear intention to be with something like the breath, um, it's a little bit easier to say, yeah, there are distractions. And, and then it gets back to this idea of uh, doing the rowing and being in the boat. You know, and if nine of the members are on board with going one way, but one person wants to go the other way, <laughs> you know, it kind of, it messes up the direction of the, of the boat. And so there's a kind of coordination with samadhi practice. And it's like, um, there, there can be, there is a way of skillfully working with these hindrances, with these attractions. And, um, without aversion, without, but I mean, sometimes it's just, I mean, I mean it sounds a little crude, but just ignoring them, <laughs> you know, concentration in a way is a little bit like a, um, it can be a kind of uh, suppression practice. I mean, that's the good thing about it. And that's going to be a little bit dangerous about it. But when you're just with something like the breath and you've set that intention, and other things come up, you can play with it. But what I often do is, um, you know, this concept of foreground and background. So letting the breath be in the foreground. And then thoughts and things will come up and just let them stay in the background. Um, if they're very strong and keep taking you away from the breath, then, make, you know, it often makes sense to turn towards them and do mindfulness with them and do, you know, sometimes they call it the vipassana break. And um, so getting to know these hindrances um, when you can, you know, just um, letting them go, ignoring them, or letting them be as they are, but just staying with the breath, you know, having that intention. Um, this is an interesting thing just to look at is certain, um, certain kinds of thoughts have a hook for us. So we really get hooked by them and they really take us away. So this is one of the very interesting things that we notice when you sit at a retreat. It's like, 
you really start to see what are the kind of characteristic um, magnets, in a way, that it is just something to look at. You know, two people could have, you know, it's like, I used to practice with a teacher who was known for being um, a little bit, uh, I don't want to say abusive, (laughs) but a little bit uh, blunt and direct and uh, strict with students. And, you know, you know, you say something like, you know, don't be a coward or something, (laughs) you know. And then for someone that could be devastating to say that to, you know, it it just um, taps into all these images I have about myself or things in my past, and it can be extremely distressing and unskillful. For another person, you know, that could be just the thing that, you know, I needed to hear. You know, he wasn't, he's not going to hurt, you know, you know, just like, oh yeah, I need to, I am being lazy. I need to try, you know. And so it's very interesting that we have our own, we bring our own conditioning to these things. And just to notice what, when you, real, when you know what are the hooks for you, you can learn to skillfully relate to them. And that's the thing about these hindrances. It's like, we're never going to totally delete them. Um, there are states of consciousness where they're not present. Um, But the, the, the question is how to work with them skillfully. Um, and you know, I say, I say one of the things is I was never really that interested in this topic of the hindrances um, until having the experience of a mind where the hindrances are absent. And, it's, and you think like, yeah, you know, okay, there's desire, there's fear, there's aversion, there's restlessness, these are kind of operating in the background for most of us most of the time. But when these are not present, when they're absent, it's quite amazing. You know, the mind is so light. The mind is so um, free and empty and can really has the ability to see and really has the ability to stay with the breath. And so then you start to see that these are really, oh, these hindrances have really been holding me back. <laughs> you know, Gill calls them uh, wind drag. You know, they're the kind of, you know, you never notice what wind drag is until it's not there anymore, right? You know, until you're in a really, you're driving a Tesla or something. I've never driven a Tesla, but, you know, um, driving these boxy cars or something, and then you just... Um, or when you're swimming and you take off the paddles, and it's like, wow. Um, so the hindrances are, are very, very uh, useful to, to know about. Um, any questions about that? Well, I want to. I want to do a meditation and just. Um, Thank you. 
Um, so now I forgot my question. I got all wrapped up in the microphone. Um, uh, it was. It has something to do with thinking, and and um, and this may be a little off topic, so you can just stop me. But you talk a lot about thoughts, but there's also thinking, right? I mean, you know, in a different context of I'm sitting on the floor, and there must be some thinking going on because I can hold my body up straight and coordinate this whole activity that's going on right here but then there's also kind of these extraneous thoughts that are going to and can you sep- do you have um a terminology or some way to separate those two things or are they the same thing that's a great yeah did everyone hear the question they're just about thinking and working with thinking and the different kinds of thinking it's a great question and thinking is most i mean most meditators would say the biggest obstacle to like samadhi practice concentration practice is thinking you know thinking only thinking and the mind goes off and the, um, so this is one of the things to become a connoisseur to become a you know an expert in your own thinking is extremely useful and um As, as, you, as you pointed to in your question, there are different kinds of thinking, different kinds of thoughts. Um, in Zen, they say, thinking the thought of zazen, thinking the thought of meditation. You know, so there's a certain... I, I, I said this last week of like, when we sit, you know, like when we sit here, I'll be guiding the meditation. But when you sit at home, you can guide yourself. And that's thinking. You know, there's a form of thinking in that. It's like, okay relax and take a few deep breaths you know and it's just you know you kind of you're guiding yourself you're thinking um that's a kind of skillful thinking because it's it's thinking about meditation and um so for the purpose of samadhi of concentration when we're trying to simplify and really just be with the breath um you it, it's it's one of those things to look at how does um this thinking help or hinder the project of, of samadhi, of concentration. So, um, I think of it as, when thoughts don't have a lot of emotional pull, when it's just like, oh, I wonder, wonder what's for dinner, or I wonder, you know, you know, something random and something, it can be easy and it can be skillful just to let go of it. You know, just to kind of, you know, oh, you just you just wordlessly notice that you're thinking about dinner and then you come back to the breath and reconnect to the breath. And, you know, and it's just, it's painless. It's just, there's not a lot, you know. Um, so what I would say for the purpose of samadhi practice, when you can just let go of the thinking and come back to the breath, that's probably the the first thing I would try, the first thing I would do. Um, the second thing is um, this idea, like I said, about foreground and background. Until, I mean, until you get into much uh, kind of deeper, more settled states of, of absorption, there's going to be background thinking. You know, don't worry about it. Don't let it bother you. Just... Just let it be. It's like a radio that's on in the back. 
you're doing your work, you're doing your knitting, or you know, you're, you're doing with, your, with the breath. And then there's something going on, you know, the TV's on in the background. That's fine. You know, if you can just stay with the breath and let the breath be in the foreground, um, often what happens is the background noise starts to fade. If you're not feeding it, if you're not giving it, you know, attention and interest, and oh, yeah, yeah, why did you do that? You know, yeah, it just starts to fade. That's the second kind. So kind of letting it go, letting it be, just letting it be in the background. And then the third kind is um, when thoughts have, this is often when thoughts have a very strong emotional basis or emotional pull, then it can be skillful to, I mean, I often use the terminology of like doing, taking a vipassana break, you know, doing samadhi and you're doing this focus. But it's like, okay, I'm going to turn towards that thinking itself because it keeps coming up. It has a lot of energy. It has a lot of pull. Maybe there was some, you know, you're sitting down to do your meditation in the evening and you keep thinking, you keep coming back to a conflict you had with someone that day. You're like, okay, it's a little bit silly to be here and keep trying to like stay with the breath and pull back to the breath when there's something is really alive and really emotional in me right now. It can be very skillful to, you know, the movement is you just turn toward the thinking. You turn toward the thinking is, and especially what emotions may be there. And then that becomes the meditation. And it could be for a minute, it could be for five minutes, it could be for the rest of the sitting. It's to really feel into the emotions. You know, oh yeah, there was a lot of anger there, and there's a lot of fear, and there was a lot of uh, agitation, and you know, I just okay, what does that feel like in the body? Okay, just stay with that. Maybe breathe into it. You know, so there can be a way of working with the breath that, um, which naturally tends to be calming and settling. Breathing into the thinking, breathe with the thinking, and then you might find, oh, okay, you know. Then you might find that the mind wants to go to the breath, and you go back to the breath. Does that mean you know, so? Is there one more kind of thinking, though, the functional kind of? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, the reason I started thinking about this too is because I practice martial arts, and my teacher's always like, "No effort," <laughs> and it actually is true, and that's the hardest thing to do. But the less effort you put in, the harder you can kick something and um and but there has to be thinking going on because there's an awful lot of things you have to do to get the form right and land the kick and hit the target and all that stuff and i kept thinking i couldn't help thinking about that while i was doing my class last week because you had just talked about it and so you know but what i notice is, is when he says something to me like your shoulders are too tight and then i try to relax my shoulders i will miss the target every single time because then I'm like thinking I have to relax my shoulders and then I'll kick the tiger and I'll miss it. But, um, but there is something happening there, but you're not aware of it. And that has to be happening when you're meditating too, right? Because your body is sitting up, right? Something has to be, of course, right. it, but I can't, I'm not aware of it being there. So where is it? Don't and do you ever it. hear it? <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I say that is because it, this is one of the, you know, I think very similar to martial arts or something. It's like, you know, in Zen they say you get, you, you get Zen through your pores, through the pores of your skin. You can't figure it out. 
samadhi concentration is not something you finally figure out. It's like, oh yeah, I worked it out, and like I, you know, I solved it or something, you know, in my head. It's it's like kind of muscle memory. It's like driving a stick shift. You know, you never think about it anymore. Your body just knows what to do. And in fact, when you just you know, or like doing in tennis, like to serve or something, you know, when you bring in that kind of consciousness of thinking about it, it's often you mess it up. So this is the same way. It's like letting it settle into the body and letting those grooves develop until it can become effortless and you can let go of thinking and discursive thinking. And of course, there's intentionality. There's something that's going on that keeps you from being here as opposed to you know wandering around but um, yeah I mean so that's basically you know whatever I'm aware of the time and I want to start the meditation um, just to have a few minutes to kind of you know get into this um, so 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 in this what I, what I want to do is try to put some of the principles that we've been talking about into practice and just give you a taste of it and you can do this at home you can guide yourself um, we're, we're always you know it's like anything we're teaching ourselves how to do this so we're training ourselves training the heart training the mind and um So just taking a relaxed, upright posture is, you know, know, for the purposes of samadhi, it's helpful to be comfortable. Um, The proximate cause for samadhi is happiness, is joy. So just connecting to some sense of ease, well-being, taking a few deep breaths. Just setting the intention to be with, to connect to the sensations of the breath. As you sit, this upright structure, seeing if you can relax around. The posture. Letting something just melt into the floor, into the chair. Letting the floor hold you up. Letting the chair support you. within this framework of the body, letting the sensations of the breath come into the mind.
just in a very receptive way, noticing that the body is breathing. Counting the breath, just a very gentle one on the out breath. Two. Breathe out, seeing if you can just relax a little more on the exhale. Just let go a little bit more. adjustments to the breath, micro-adjustments that would make the breath more enjoyable. Or pleasurable. to choose one place to notice the breath. Maybe the softness of the belly. Or at the nostrils. Being simple, simplifying the breath. Tuning into the rhythm of the breath. Connecting and polishing 
seeing if you can keep the sensations of the breath in the foreground. Let all the thoughts be in the background. In a few minutes, I'll ring the bell. Just for this last minute, see if you can stay with each breath. Don't miss a single inhalation or exhalation. Whatever effort that takes, Give yourself to the breath. like a cat at the mouse hole, just waiting, waiting for that next breath. You might just take a moment and just, while it's fresh, just to reflect if you could notice any of these hindrances that came up, you know. Was there some desire in the mind, wanting something to happen or something, something, or wanting something to stop happening? Let's just be over already. (laughs) You know, that's the second one. Um, any restlessness, just wanting to move, wanting to get up, or just sleepiness, just dull sleepiness, um, or doubt. You know, what is, is this really, you know, what is, why, why are we, <laughs> you know, these, you know, so those are the hindrances. And as much as possible to have this attitude of, welcoming them, um, 
that they have a lot to teach us and, um, you know, to bring a spirit of ease and a play and is really helpful. Um, and, um, and, and don't let them stop you. Don't let them, you know, just like what that Stanford researcher was saying, Challenging the mind in this way makes it stronger. So the push to stay with more breaths is, is a muscle that you're building each time you do it. So every time you come back to the breath, it's building that muscle. So um, anyway, thank you very much. Uh,